You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Steve Barnett, who is a technical specialist PhD with extensive sales and marketing experience in a broad array of optical sensor technologies. His experience with applications in pharmaceutical, biotech, aerospace, homeland security, material science, forensic science, polymer, and petrochemical industries. He has managed global relationships with multinational corporations, formed sales and support structure for operations in 35 countries, and much, much more. On today's show, we talk about if a startup was looking to get government contracts or sell their product to the public sector, what is the best way to go about doing that? How does one decide on what problem or challenge to tackle next? And what has currently happened with the capital of California and their tech scene? This and much more today's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Steve, welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, I'm very excited for you to be here. You're introduced to us by Christina Kumar, who's been a huge supporter of the show. For our audience, she's the one that introduced us to Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square. And that interview, we got a lot of great feedback from it. And something else is she's coming out with a book, which I'm sure is going to be a bestseller. You can order it right now. Go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. The link will be there. And if you follow us on LinkedIn and other social media platforms as well, the link is there. But with that, Steve, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your career up until this point? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and spend a few minutes with you and with your audience. I'm a chemist by training, did my undergraduate and graduate school at McGill University in Montreal. It's a great school and Montreal's a great city. I miss both of them. Then went on to become a medical researcher at the National Institutes of Health, which was a continuation of some of my work I did at McGill University. Later on, did get an MBA degree, which helped me bridge some of the scientific and engineering knowledge with my business background. My specialty is in the use of light and optics for chemical and materials analysis. What is a material? What structure is it? Which is an important question to answer when you're building new devices and developing new technologies. I spent 10 years in industry and realized that I wasn't really using much of my knowledge. It was getting very frustrating, getting bored, and eventually just went off and formed my own company, Barnett Technical Services, to do consulting, to do training, and also to do some work where we sell and distribute products that are of value to scientists and engineers, but they might not have access to through other means. So we've been doing that for about 10 or 11 years. About five years ago, we also started a co-working space in uh, my hometown in Elk Grove. And that's something else that keeps me quite busy as well. Okay, now let's go to that last thing you'd mentioned there, Elk Grove, because even people here in Silicon Valley probably have never heard of that town. I I fortunately have. I know you. I know the economic developer there. I visited great little city, great little town outside of the capital, Sacramento. So I'm kind of curious, what attracted you or other startups to that area? And how can other cities attract startups, try to attract tech to them? Sacramento, if you go back historically, it was always a traditional government town. There were many government jobs, state of California jobs. Elk Grove was what was called a commuter city where 
it was a great place to live, great schools, great parks. People would live there with their families. They'd drive up to downtown Sacramento, do their job, come back home. That's what Elk Grove always was. And about 10 years ago, the city realized that they needed to diversify their job base. And that has been a goal for many years. That's something that the Economic Development Department has been very active with in terms of the startup community. They realize startup businesses, the startup ecosystem is something that would be great to attract to Elk Grove. They've had done great, they've done great work in supporting Inner Grove as a co-working space. They've got great programs to support uh, startup companies that are located in Elk Grove or that want to come to Elk Grove. All of that support is typically tried tied to job growth. They have supported two startup companies. One of them I just heard today completed, closed out a $3 million seed round. The other one in a matter of the past six months has gone from six employees to 17. So they're well on their way to success with their products. Okay. So it sounds like the town is putting a lot of resources into finding again these companies, but what about the city of Sacramento itself? What about the state capital of California? What are they doing right now in tech? City of Sacramento also has been quite aggressive in supporting startup businesses. And in general, the Sacramento region is a great location for startup businesses. Down here in Silicon Valley, it's obviously the epicenter of startup life. There are many businesses, there are many resources. Sacramento is small enough so that we can have a single community where everyone gets to know each other. There's not the competitive pressure of worrying, oh, are you revealing a secret to someone else? You can be pretty open. People want to work with each other. There's a a group called Startup Sac that coordinates many of the activities in the region that have great leaders that help us keep our activity moving forward within the region. We've got a new accelerator in the region that has a goal of funding 100 new businesses in the next few years. They say these should be businesses based in Sacramento. That's what they want to do. It's a time for Sacramento to grow. We come across many, many people that have been based in, in Silicon Valley and especially have been based in San Francisco, have grown a business, and then all of a sudden realize, oh, wait, there's more to life. The Sacramento region can give you a much better quality of life for many people, especially if you've got a family, if you've got kids, all of a sudden people look and say, oh, wait, I want a good school system. I love the idea of being. 90 minute drive from the ocean. I'm a 90 minute drive from skiing. And that's sort of an intangible that is a bit difficult to find in Silicon Valley. And that quality of life is what makes Sacramento an attractive place to set up your business. Steve, have you been seeing a lot of this relocation? Was it happening before COVID or did it just start happening in this last year? And could you go into a little bit more detail of maybe the differences of Sacramento and Silicon Valley. And for our listeners, you know, Sacramento, San Francisco to San Jose for the global audience. Well, first of all, you can never go wrong starting your business in Silicon Valley. It's the place to start your business. It's the easiest place to get funding. It's the easiest place to find technical personnel because this is where they're all located. So you can never go wrong. That's the first thing you have to start with. But for some people, they do realize that there's a bit more to life sometimes beyond just being in the best place that sometimes you can be in a good place and then balance that with other attributes of life. That's what Sacramento can provide. 
it provides a good quality of life, yet it's uh, an hour and a half away from Silicon Valley. So you can still access many of the resources that are present in Silicon Valley. I'd say the migration to the Sacramento region probably started about three years ago, probably was tied to as the cost of real estate increased in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. You had either people who owned a house and realized they could sell it and then come to Sacramento and buy a house for cash, which is attractive. Or you had many other people who realized they were never going to be able to afford a home and they wanted to afford a home. And and that's what the Sacramento region provides. During COVID, we definitely saw that migration increase as people wanted to get out of dense locations and get to more, not so much rural locations. Sacramento is not rural, but it's also not as dense a location. So I would say it probably increased during the past year and a half of COVID. Do you think now that COVID is ended and we're going back to more in-person, do you think some of those people that left this last year to go to Sacramento will come back to Silicon Valley? Or do you think maybe because everything is being remote now, they're going to stay there? I think in general, most people will stay. It's not a matter of because they can work remotely, Sacramento is a great choice. It's a matter of they made the choice to move out of Silicon Valley, enjoy the life in Sacramento. And to be honest, there are always going to be new people that move into Silicon Valley to replace the employment base that's there. That's, that's part of the attractiveness of Silicon Valley. It is if you're a tech worker and you can get to Silicon Valley, it's the place to be. Do you think there's going to come a time when people will specifically want to set up their company in Sacramento? Or I guess, I mean, as mentioned before, start in Silicon Valley, get a couple employees, maybe change the way of your life, relocate. What about just starting in Sacramento from day one? That's, there's definitely an aspect of that that is attractive. The fact that we can be very close to Silicon Valley, like I said, we're about 90 minutes away. So you get some of the quality of life issues and the benefits of starting your company in Sacramento, yet you're still very close to Silicon Valley. That's something that we have had some companies that chosen to grow their business in Sacramento for that reason. Now, if I had a startup in maybe government tech or something related with the government, how would I, well, one, would Sacramento be the place to, to be? And how would I go about trying to sell that product in the public sector? I mean, what are the best ways to go about doing it? Well, as with anything that you're selling, it's important to have access to the decision makers in the decision making process. And often being in Sacramento does provide some benefits along those lines. I wouldn't say it's essential, but there are definitely some benefits of being in Sacramento. There are some state employees that we do some work with as we're talking and they find out that we're based in the Sacramento region. It's a pleasant surprise for them because they're not used to talking to people from the region. And for example, I'll have a meeting tomorrow with one of them who probably hasn't met many other representatives from companies because they're located in other places. How come more companies aren't opening an office or a satellite office or something in Sacramento? Because at least from my understanding, the, I don't want to say power, but the, I guess, buying power of the state is getting bigger and bigger every day. I mean, I would think that would be such a huge client for so many businesses that they would want an office there or many gov tech startups or, or that would try to position themselves there versus Silicon Valley. I mean, there is there are some attributes that make it attractive for that reason. But the bottom line is if you have a good product and especially in California, you can fly into Sacramento, it takes an hour and 
the price for the flights is pretty inexpensive. I wouldn't say it's essential. I mean, if you're doing 100% government business, then yeah, it definitely makes sense to have a presence. But rarely do people only provide government services with their businesses. Could you tell us, because I've actually never had anyone on the show that's ever really done anything with the government, selling their products to the government, working with the government. So this is brand new barren territory for us. Can you talk about selling to the government, kind of what those that process looks like. Is it similar to B&B? Is it more complicated, more time consuming? What does it look like? It has a bit of a different dynamic. And again, I'll, I'll speak about it in terms of we sell technical products. Through our work, we always have to work with technical personnel within the state and get their buy-in to what we're offering for them as a product. But on top of that, there's also a layer on top of government oversight, if we can put it that way where there are certain aspects of a procurement that have to go through certain government regulations, certain government steps. Generally, they take more work and more time. Sometimes it can be more frustrating because if you're just selling the private industry, a company or personnel will just want the best solution at the best price. And sometimes it can go fairly quickly and fairly straightforward. The government component can definitely be more difficult, more complicated. There are many more issues you have to always think about. Sometimes challenges can come from places you wouldn't expect as a technical person. Having said that, working with the government is, does have some nice factors. They pay their bills on time. Their, their checks never bounce. We've had some industry customers that we thought were going to pay on 30 days notice. Companies that are very profitable and all of a sudden they said, oh, well, we're not going to pay you for three months. And there's nothing you can do about it. You just say, thank you very much. And guess that's a push forward. Wait, so let's go back a little bit. You said technical issues. Sometimes they're a little bit more challenging. Do you have any examples of that? Or, or what is it just explaining to people that may not have a technical background? Is that the difficulty or what, what is that? We provide technical solutions or solutions related to technology, not computer technology, but chemical analysis technology. And very often we speak to scientists and engineers to get them to buy into and to agree that our solution is the one that they would like to go with. However, the state is a big place. And sometimes there are other scientists and other technical people that have nothing to do with the discussions we're having who decide, oh no, vendor B is, is our preferred vendor and we want to go with them. They'll raise it with a non-technical person within the government. And then sometimes that can complicate a situation. So then you need to know how much of a technical argument to make with a purchasing person or a government employee who really shouldn't be getting into the technical details of what the purchase is. Interesting. Now, would you say it's because that person got elected in that position or was appointed to that position based on connections? Or why would a person be in a position where they probably have to make a technical decision without a technical background? Well, no, definitely not. I wouldn't say appointed or nothing along those lines. The bottom line is a government is supposed to buy a product at the lowest price. And if a government employee or if a government agency is buying pens or paper or something along those lines, then yes, it makes sense to follow the lowest price. When you get into technical products, there are more esoteric issues related to how well the product works that not only need to be considered, but almost need to be most important, actually, in many situations. In some cases, 
the people that decide on purchases look too much at price without taking into account the technical attributes that a scientist or engineer might be bringing up in the sale process. So yeah, another question then with maybe the person that's being talked to for in the sales process, I know a lot of corporations are very hesitant to work with startups or use their product because of, well, the company might not be around. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Are there times when companies are too early for governments? I wouldn't necessarily say there are times that companies can be too early. Inevitably, a company has to provide validation that their solution is one that will meet the government's needs. And so in some respects, selling to the government almost can be easier because, again, price is always a very important issue with governments. We had a a situation like that last year. We were selling something to the U.S. government and the scientists wanted our product. It was pretty straightforward. And the bid came out and we submitted our bid and we figured everything. In fact, we started building the system in the, in the factory we work with. And then all of a sudden, I get a call from the scientists and he said, well, we got a response to our bid. That's a much lower price than you. And we spoke a bit about it. I said, are you sure it's the exact same product? And he said, oh, yes, same product, same description, same everything. Sometimes if you're not careful, another organization might be able to sneak in with like a 1% or 2% lower price, in which case the government has to go with it. But this was about 20% lower. It was very absurd. And it turns out that this vendor, we were buying the product from Canada, which has about a 30% exchange rate difference between the US dollar and the Canadian dollar. They took the price from Canada, made it the US price. All of a sudden, their price took a little profit on it. So all of a sudden, their price was 20% lower. They submitted their bid and the purchasing person said, legally, we're obligated to take their offer and we can't take your offer. So we lost that business. In the end, the factory said, no, we're not going to sell it to you for this lower price that you wanted to buy it for. So that sale went down the road, down the tubes. The scientist was upset. We lost the sale. Yet, because they, they were a complete unknown entity, they were just a paper company, had almost no experience. There are a lot of companies out there that do government contracts that really have no experience in building anything or distributing products. They just search for the lower dollar. And they won that bid at the lowest dollar. They didn't make any money off of it because they couldn't deliver. But I mean, that's a, that's a time where being there early, they were unknown, but because they had the best price, the government took their offer. Wow, that's, that's crazy. Now, let's talk a little bit about that beta test. If you do end up getting one with the city, from your experiences, what are the differences between working with the public sector and a private sector for a beta test? Companies tend to be more forgiving with respect to beta tests if you are upfront with them. And many times companies are willing to work with you. Government, things are definitely by the book and the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Government will rarely buy something that I wouldn't say they would not rarely buy anything that's not completed, but their paperwork will say they're buying something that's completed. If they buy, if you put a bid in for something and they buy it from you, you better make sure it's pretty much ready to go by the time you're delivering it. And that gets into a, a timeline expectation. If they're expecting to receive it one week after they've submitted their purchase order, well, then it better be ready. Many times we deal with products that are three to six months out. And so we have some time to fine tune them to what the customer is expecting. But the government 
rarely does any beta testing. They're usually buying something that's a finished product to some extent, and it should be described that way on the paperwork. Now, what about a product, say, from one type of technology sector to another? I mean, we had a call earlier. We talked about products from one sector being used in another and how that's when real disruption occurs. Can you talk about that? Yeah. If you think about it from a simplistic standpoint, you might think the greatest innovations are from taking one technology or developing one new technology and having it revolutionize something in our society. Rarely does that happen. And more often, there'll be three or four technologies that are combined in a unique way and in a different way, in a way perhaps that people hadn't thought of that are what really revolutionary society and represent marketable product. So for example, if you think about self-driving cars, well, that's got computer vision in it that has cloud computing in it. The data has to be very fast. So that's where 5G comes in and that's a hardware and a software component. So there are many different sub-technologies, if I can put them that way, that get combined in a unique way to deliver a product that is attractive to customers out there. I mean, you're based in Sacramento. You have the politicians right there. Every day you're seeing, you're seeing new laws and regulations. Here in Silicon Valley, I'm sure you've heard and in, in the world has, there's a push for equality in the workplace, get more women in tech, get them higher up there, get, get everyone involved. Being based in Sacramento, what's been your experience with that movement? I want to say all part of that ESG, environmental, government, social. Have you seen that there, a strong push? What has your experience been? Well, we've definitely seen it in Sacramento and in California. But thankfully, my experience in that area goes back probably about 30 years. Back when I was in grad school, we in, in the chemistry department at McGill, when I was there, we probably had about 25 professors and one of them was a woman. We recognized, and we being the professors in charge, but I did too, even though I was a student, we recognized that we needed more female professors. And one year we had three women undergraduates that were the top three students in the faculty of science. Everybody was really excited. We thought this was a path where these three are going to eventually become professors and they'll provide great examples of female leadership that will get more people interested in chemistry and in the sciences. Go forward three months, one of them goes off to med school, one goes off to a job in private industry, and one left school to start a family. And everyone just paused and realized something's not working right. Thankfully, the, the professors in the, in the Department of Chemistry had great foresight to implement programs and to really be aggressive in supporting women in faculty positions in the Department of Chemistry. They put in programs where you always hire the best person. Many times in chemistry, there, there are some sub-disciplines. There's inorganic chemistry and organic and analytical and, and pharmaceutical chemistry. There's about eight or 10 of them, I'd say, you know, that are common. Many times you're hiring for one of those disciplines, whereas they said, no, we're going to hire the best person to join our department. They also put in a program of supporting the spouse of a new professor, not so much supporting, but realizing that many times a woman will be married and it's true for men too. They'll be married 
and their spouse needs a job. And so helping them find some sort of a position often within the university. In chemistry, we call it the two-body problem, that you've got two bodies and two people that want to be professors. And invariably, many times they end up working in two different cities because professionally they want to be professors, but the ability for them to get positions in the same city, much less the same university, is often very difficult. So they put in that sort of a program. They put in a program that if a woman went out for maternity leave, that her period of tenure would be extended by a year. So they put in a number of programs to support the activities of women as professors in the Department of Chemistry. And now, if you look at the top 50 chemistry departments in North America, McGill University is either number one or number two in terms of their female composition of professors in the department. Fast forward, you know, 20, 25 years, it's, it's an issue I've always kept up with. When I started Integrove, our co-working space, I always wanted to have workshops to support startups. So we have a startup founders workshops every one to two months. But I also wanted to have a women in tech workshop that would help women get together, discuss issues of women in the tech industry. And we started these right around four or five years ago when the whole issue of women in tech was becoming more of a hotbed issue. So that's something we've continued. We took a bit of a pause last year and, and a little bit the year before that. And now we've started them again. Because it's, a, it's an important issue. I think we need to support women and other groups that aren't traditionally represented in the tech fields. Bottom line is the broader base of employees we have in tech fields, that's going to feed into product development and we're going to be able to develop better products. So with that, going back to being based in Sacramento, I'm really kind of curious because I'm going back to the money. The city of Sacramento from all I hear with the government, they want to implement new programs. They want to fund this, put money there. When you're seeing this, are you thinking any time some of these companies, some of these problems are better solved by the private sector versus the public? And when do you see problems that might be better solved by the public sector versus the private? Well, I would agree with you that sometimes if government gets too aggressive in terms of trying to solve problems, Many times that solution is not the ideal solution. So that's something we always have to be a little bit careful of. But there are definitely situations where having government involved does provide a benefit. A great example is our response to COVID-19. Early on, there was an aggressive policy to support the development of vaccines. Would these vaccines have been developed eventually? Well, yes, of course, but it would not have been as fast. The federal government provided not just money, but other structured programs that allowed the private industry to develop these products and that has benefited our country. Uh, it's, uh, it allowed us to develop vaccines that would have taken much longer to develop. And so, but that was something that was led by the government, but that was developed by private industry. So it was a good government-private industry partnership. What about situations where it would be better for the public sector to take it over? When would that scenario be? I must admit, I have trouble thinking of specific examples where I would want the public sector to completely take over a program or a situation. I mean, there are obviously some social programs that are extremely valuable that government provides. Invariably, if there is some sort of a private solution that either can be developed or that does exist, incorporating private industry is extremely valuable in terms of getting to a better solution and also getting to a more efficient solution. I mean, right now, 
we're trying to get out of COVID and government is spending an incredible amount of money, which is good, but there does come a point at which you have to stop printing money and you have to have some levity in terms of how much money is being spent, what it's going to, and what are you getting back from the funds that you're spending. Speaking of getting back from the funds that you're spending, I'm not sure if your company or one of the companies you've worked with have had experience where your startup, you want that eggs, but maybe not the IPO is in your future. Maybe the company's selling off parts of the company. Could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. I mean, I think that ties into the romance of being a startup company. Many people think, oh, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to go public and I'll be, I'll ring the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. And yes, there's a romance to that of having built something. And that's kind of the ultimate goal. But once you're actually in a startup, once you've got investors, once you've got funding, and once you're an operating company, you have to think about it on, on multiple levels. You have to address the needs of the investors. Many times it makes sense to sell your product to a company. Sometimes that's not the right fit. Sometimes it makes sense to just sell part of your company and certain products off to other companies or to spin that off into its own entity. Um, Alphabet slash Google has done that exactly with Waymo with their self-driving cars. They realize that's a, a technology that's a standalone technology that can exist on its own. And they've set it up as its own independent company. Potentially, someone else could buy it like Apple, although I doubt that because Apple is developing it on their own probably. Potentially, that could be spun off onto, into its own public company. But at least Google, has, Google and Alphabet have put that structure in place so that whatever decision needs to be taken with respect to the self-driving car units, it's already in place. Interesting. And then, Steve, I want to kind of talk a little bit about your company. You're a CEO. When you're thinking of what problems, what challenges to face next, how do you go about thinking about it? Well, I do tend to be a little bit conservative. I mean, if, if I do think about problems and where we can go with developments, the first step is obviously identifying a problem that's out there. Then I ask, is it something that we potentially can address? We being the personnel within our company, other people we might work with, funding-wise, is it something that we can allocate funds to? It's also important to think about who else might be doing this. If you're trying to develop something and Apple's also developing it, I'm not quite sure I would want to compete with them. And so it might just be as much as you have what you think is a good solution, unless you really think it's the best solution out there, you might want to think about it twice. And then can you share a story with us about either your company or another startup? Well, your company's not a startup. It's been around a little bit too, <laughs> a little bit longer than everyone's. But do you have a story you could share with us where you learned something, where you grew as a company, something that our listeners can listen to and go, I got some knowledge from this? Back during those 10 years when I was in industry, there were a couple of years when I had formed a startup and we were developing a biomedical device. Had some great potential. And this was back around 9-11. We started it about a year, year and a half before. Started moving. We're starting to raise some funds and, and talking to investors. Then 9-11 hit. And for a few months, nobody wants to talk about anything because everyone was just in such shock. Did have a couple of people that came to us and said, you know, if you pivoted to Homeland Security, your same technology could be used for Homeland Security. 
and it would be a great success. But I was too stubborn because we were a biomedical company. That's it. And darn it, we're going to do it. We're just going to stick with it. And we're going to keep pushing forward. And 18 months later, we crashed and burned. But if we had gone to Homeland Security, I have no doubt we would have been funded. We would have had success. We would have grown. And that's a lesson I've learned that I didn't know back then, that sometimes you have to have some perspective and you have to look at your entire environment, your entire ecosystem, and consider where are you going with your company, what technologies and what products do you have, and where can it go? And especially in the startup world, what's your potential for being funded for it if you're going to be needing funding? And do you think this is words of wisdom for some of those companies that jumped on the COVID? PPE bandwagon or not? It depends. I think there was definitely some short-term money that could have been made developing those products. But unless you had some kind of a super great mask that was going to solve the world's problems, I hope that companies didn't put a lot of money into it. But however, to get short-term funds during COVID, I think it was great that companies did that. We even thought about doing that at our co-working space and within our company is it something we could have done? And we weren't really set up to do it, but it was something we thought about. It was a combination of we knew it was something needed. And if we could figure out a way to do it, could we bring something to the marketplace quickly? We decided not to because it wasn't in our alley, if I can put it that way. So, Okay. And then for our listeners, can you kind of tell us about what your alley is, what you're working on right now? Give us a little insight into Steve's company. So most of what we do is we work with technologies that are typically developed outside the U.S. and we bring them into the U.S. And most of the time, based on my expertise, they involve the use of light or optics to characterize materials. That's most of what we do. But every once in a while, we do come across problems where we think we have a solution that can be compelling for the marketplace. One project we're working on, this was actually to get back to the whole question related to what role does government have, the state of California has a program to develop methods to detect microplastics in water. To be honest, we're not really sure what the impact of microplastics is. I have a hunch of what the answer to that will be, but we don't really know. The studies haven't been done because we can't even really detect them very well. So the state is developing methods so that in your drinking water, they can assess the size, the shape, and how many microplastic particles are in your drinking water sample. And this ties into eventually if they decide there needs to be some level at which they need to be cleaned up, they can do that. So there have been a, there's been a project going on with probably about 40 teams. And this is a worldwide project. There are teams from China, teams from Europe. Most of them are in the US and Canada to study methods related to the detection of microplastic particles. And this often ties into methods of isolating those particles from water. And then how do you detect, again, the size, the shape, the chemical composition of the microplastics. and The solution has been difficult. Technically, the solution isn't difficult. I mean, there are definitely ways of doing it, but to have a solution that can eventually be implemented into a water laboratory that is providing water to the general public, it needs to be fast. It needs to be low cost. So it it can't just give the right answers, but it also has to have those other attributes as well. And there is an extension of some of the technology we work with that we believe will play a critical role in that. Uh, We recently submitted some patents along those lines, and we hope to develop some prototypes in the next uh, six to 12 months to implement those methods. Eventually, we, we can see these being part of the microplastic detection solution 
in our water laboratories. I'm kind of curious about that micro detection. I mean, how does, if a state were to want to implement this technology, how exactly would they roll it out? I mean, they can't really pick and choose favored cities. What's kind of a rollout model for when technology gets implemented in a state? Well, the state of California is implementing a multi-step process. You're right. They cannot pick winners and losers, and they're not trying to, but they are providing recommended methods to that water laboratory should implement. They realize that all the answers aren't quite there yet. So these aren't going to necessarily be requirements, but these are going to be, there are going to be some preferred methods that water laboratories should use. The state also recognizes that as technology develops, that their recommendations are going to have to modify. And so it's, an, it's definitely an ongoing process with the state of California. Are there certain areas of technology that you've heard about being in Sacramento where the government's really interested in developing this technology, whether it's smart city technology, whether it's fintech or blockchain? What's the rumor on the street of this is what's interesting or getting budget allocated or something just to pay attention to in the future? Well, I think the state is very interested in supporting small business and startup businesses. There have been recently some funding improvements for the State Department, which is called GoBiz, which does support small business. We got a a GoBiz grant, which again, that, that was also tied to hiring people. So where the state will provide some tax incentives to hiring people in. And it's not only in technology fields. It's something that many, it tends to be something that a lot of the medium sized companies at least go for, but it's something that small business shouldn't ignore because I, I was speaking to one person about it and I said, well, you know, you can get a great tax credit if you hire people. And he said, oh, I don't want tax credits. I want funding. But that's the same thing. I mean, yes, it's, it's on the back end. It, it comes when you file your taxes a year later. We received a significant amount of tax credits, mainly just for growing our business, for hiring people that we would have hired anyways. That's fascinating. And before we wrap up, any tips, tricks, any action items that you want to recommend to our audience for the entrepreneurs out there, wherever they are in the world? I would say always listen to the advice that you get. Yes, you have to sometimes take it with a grain of salt. You have to think about who it's coming from, but always consider it because many times if you're in a startup, you're so enamored with your technology. And I've seen it so many times. You're so enamored with your technology that you really don't see the limitations on either your technology or your business development. You don't see the competitors that are out there. And many times people will warn you and say, what about this? What about that? And always consider everything everyone says. You know, Even though you think you've got the greatest thing since sliced bread, if you've got a big baker next door that has great bread, your bread's not going to be sold. So always keep that sort of thing in mind. Think about your broader environment of what can impact your business, not just in your area, but more broadly, more globally, because at the end of the day, you have to sell product. Sometimes there are things that you wouldn't expect, even if technically you've developed the greatest product on earth. If there are other reasons why a company, a a customer would not be able to buy your product like COVID, 
coming up, then you have to take that into account for your business and be ready for it because it's much better to be ready for it than to have it come as a surprise. Steve, with that, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Best way is to find us at our website. Uh, we have two websites. Barnett Technical Services is at barnett-technical.com. So that's our, our product distribution, the light and optics page. And then our co-working space is Innogrove, I-N-N-O-G-R-O-V-E.com. Always love to hear from people. Great. We're going to have that information in the show notes. And once again, I want to thank Christina Kumar, who made the introduction and a shameless plug for myself. But I'm not doing this podcast. I am a principal at Global Capital Markets and Mid-Market Investment Bank. Any founders out there that have an acquisition offer, they're looking to find out if it's a good one or not, want to run a process, please let me know. Or if you're looking to acquire a technology company or looking to get acquired or raise around a growth capital, 10 million or more, please reach out to me. My email for that is sf at globalcapitalmarkets.com. But with that, Steve, I want to thank you for your time. Please, everyone, visit the website, the Silicon Valley Podcast.com. And Steve, I look forward to getting you on the show again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley Podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.